Well, good morning to you all. It's good to see you all here, and may the Lord bless you and keep you and multiply His grace to you in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, this morning as you worship the Lord. And if you are joining us via live stream, we're glad to have you with us as well. I want to draw your attention just to a few announcements uh, this morning. Number one is that tomorrow here at the church, going to have a time of prayer uh, from 6 to 7 p.m., praying for the church, taking personal prayer requests as well. And so uh, tomorrow here at the church, 6 p.m. to 7 p.m., December 16th, uh, we're going to have a men's breakfast here at the church beginning at 8 a.m. And uh, so uh, come uh, if you're able to and if you are a man and uh, have some good food, fellowship, and a short word of exhortation. So again, December 16th at uh, 8 a.m. And then the following day, so uh, since we are entering into the holiday schedule, a few things that I want to just put on your minds right now. We'll try to be good about reminding you as we get closer. Uh, December 17th will actually be our Christmas service, and so expect uh, something uh, special uh, from uh, the kids on that day. And then, uh, as you probably know, if you don't, you probably should know at this point that the the Christmas Eve falls on a Sunday. So what's going to happen is that December 24th, we're going to have our our regular morning service, still uh, sort of Advent-themed, not sort of, it will be Advent-themed. And then the evening at 6 p.m., we'll have our, our traditional Christmas Eve uh, service. So back-to-back. I know it's probably something you haven't done in, in quite a long time, or for some of you, like myself, probably, actually, no, I grew up with it. Uh, but haven't done in quite a very long time. That is, having service on, uh, on two services on the same day. Um, but we're going to do it, and we're going to have that. Uh, I, maybe I'll be there. I don't know. depends on whether or not my son will be here. Uh, but we'll see. I, I hope to be there. But anyways, Sunday morning service, the 24th, and then Sunday evening service, that same day, about an hour in length, probably shorter than that. So just mark that on your calendars uh, for then. So all that being said, uh, let's go before the Lord and let us worship Him uh, this morning. And they say that uh, a lot of the, the challenges and frustrations and the battles uh, in a given day or in a given week are det- whether or not you win them or lose them are determined in the mind, right? And perhaps you've had a lot of frustrations and a lot of challenges, a lot of things. I don't know what's occupied your minds this past week. I don't know what have been frustrating to your minds this week, what you have been thinking about most this week. But one of the reasons why we come together this very morning is to reorient our minds and to fix our minds on Christ Jesus. We want to think about Christ. We want to think about his person. We want to think about his work. And so as we draw near and as we worship the Lord, let us have high thoughts of our Savior Jesus Christ as we sing of his praise and let our thoughts of the Lord Jesus uh, overflow in thanksgiving and gratitude and worship for who Christ is and what Christ has done. So let us go before the Lord and cast our minds on Christ Jesus and worship him. Amen. Amen. Church, let's stand. Let's do just that as I, <clears throat> as I read Psalm 100. It says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. And we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Amen. Amen. 
Should nothing of our effort stand, no legacy survive, unless the Lord does raise the house in vain, its builders strive to you who boast tomorrow's gain. Tell me, what is your life? A mist that vanishes at dawn. All glory be to Christ. All glory be to Christ our King. All glory be to Christ. His rule and reign will ever sing. All glory be to Christ. His will be done, His kingdom come on earth as His
breakers and thieves for the worthless the least you have said that our judgment is death for all eternity without hope without rest oh what an amazing mystery what an amazing gathered this morning as a church, as a body, Lord. To remember, God, the work that you've done on the cross for your people, for the world. 
to remember, God, your promises, to be encouraged by your promises, to be edified by the preaching of your word, to sing songs of praise that only you deserve. to pray, to be in true fellowship with one another, holding each other up, Father, in prayer, encouraging one another in your word. Lord, continue to lead us. Continue to lead us, Lord, now in your truth. That your Holy Spirit, Father, may speak through your word. God, I'm just thankful for your church. Thankful, Father, that we have a place to congregate and get together. Some places don't have that. So, Father, I'm just thankful for all the faces that that are here today and those that are watching and streaming as well, Lord, just thankful, Father, for your church. Thankful, Father, for your work. May you continue to do that now, Lord. I pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church, you may be seated. At this time, we'll be dismissing our children to their classrooms. going to read to us from Isaiah 55, uh, verses 6 through 11, and then we will we'll pray. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eaters, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Amen. Let's go to the Lord and let us pray. Lord, we come together and we draw near to your presence, desiring to to fix our minds upon Christ Jesus, our precious Savior, our Redeemer, uh, the High Priest of our confession. We want to give careful thought and consideration to who you are and what you have done for us. Lord, and the reason why we come each week to give our thoughts and turn them to you is because you are inexhaustible. To know you and to understand who you are and to understand your ways would take an eternity. 
And so we strive with our finite minds to try to comprehend the incomprehensible God. But Lord, what a precious subject. What a precious topic we have to consider. Your word tells us that your ways, your thoughts are much higher than ours. Oh Lord, how sweet it is that you would invite your precious saints to draw near your presence and still try to comprehend the the thoughts and the ways of our powerful God. So we want to continue to fix our minds on you, Lord. Father, we pray that you might graciously, Lord, have mercy on us and forgive us of our sins and trespasses, including, Lord, the thoughts of our minds. Lord, if we were to be keenly aware of every single thought of our minds, we might become that much more aware of how many of them are are unbecoming of a Christian, how many of them might be sinful, how many of them might be faithless, how many of them might be thankless. Lord, but you know every single one of our thoughts. You know the intent behind every thought. You know the heart behind every thought. And you know that they are not always right. God, so we, we, we ask that you might be merciful and forgive us. And God, we're so thankful that even in our darkest thoughts, you still welcome us into your presence. You even receive us this morning, knowing our thoughts and the deepest intents of our hearts. You still invite us to come and draw near because you are a loving Father. Lord, would you help us in our thoughts? Would you help us in our lives? Your word tells us what to think about, to think about whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, to think about these things. Your word tells us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And this transformation is impossible without your word and the work of your spirit. So Lord, with the same grace that you graciously, that you freely give unto us that results in the forgiveness of our sins, would you freely bestow upon us your grace that we need to continue to be transformed by the renewing of our minds and helping us to think on those things that your word tells us to think about. And Lord, we also draw our attention this morning to your precious saints. We pray specifically, Lord, for the Remmers, that you might continue to bless them and keep them. We pray, Father, that you would continue to direct their paths, God, and that, they might, that you might be a lamp unto their feet. Continue to teach them, 
continue to strengthen their faith. We pray, Lord, for their children and their families, that you would bless them, bless their marriages, their home, their raising of children, that you would provide for every need of theirs in Christ Jesus, and that you might help Jeff and Terry to be an encouragement and a source of wisdom to their kids. We pray this morning for the Shahs. So, Lord, we thank you, Lord, for that you have continued to sustain them in their health throughout this year, and we pray that you might continue to do so so they may continue to worship you and honor you and glorify you. Lord, we pray for their daughter, Debbie, as she continues to struggle with cancer. Lord, we pray that in these moments, we pray for ease, we pray for relief. But more than anything, Lord, we pray for her soul. We pray for the souls of all their children and their grandkids, God, that they might come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ that they might turn to Jesus as their precious Savior. Lord, we pray that you might bring to them faithful servants, Lord, who will witness to them the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you might use Bill and and Ruth as well to witness to their children, and that they might be brought to saving faith in Christ Jesus. Lord, we pray for those who are in a season of trial, for those who are in a season of challenge, for those who find their faith tested moment by moment, even hour by hour. Lord, would you you provide hope? Lord, would you care for your precious saints? Protect them. Keep them, Lord, from the schemes of the evil one. Strengthen them in their faith. Encourage them. And we pray, Father, for relief. We pray that you might restore to them the joy of their salvation. God, we pray for the breaks as they continue to minister at UNH. Lord, would you give to them all that they need to continue to do their work well, working for the great pleasure of their master in heaven, working for the glory of the kingdom of heaven, working to till the soil of this campus and the hearts of the students that they continue to minister and share the gospel with. Lord, give them a winsomeness and a boldness to continue to proclaim the gospel and that they might see and that we might witness an incredible salvation there in that campus. Father, we pray We pray for revival. We pray for another awakening here in New England. We pray that the hearts of many might be turned to Christ Jesus as their Lord and Savior. We pray for ourselves. We pray for other like-minded churches, for sister churches, that they and us might be equipped with boldness and courage to continue to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray specifically, Lord, for, for Hampton Falls Baptist. We pray for Ken, for Odom, for Caleb, Lord, to continue to minister to the saints. Would you give them wisdom and knowledge and understanding? Would you help the saints to continue to fix their minds upon their precious Savior, Jesus Christ? Lord, we pray for our country. Lord, as we enter into the holiday season, as we get ready once again to celebrate with friends and family and give gifts and receive gifts, 
Lord, we're reminded of how easy it is for men, for any of us, to attach ourselves to material things, to find our hope and our satisfaction in material things. Lord, we pray that man might see that their, the fact that their physical hunger is never satisfied, that their spiritual appetites are never satisfied, that these are intended to point to something much more substantial and something transcendent. Lord, you have made man for yourself. And as Augustine has once said, that our hearts are restless until it finds its rest in you, Lord. That in the pursuit of materialism, and that even in this wonderful holiday celebration, Lord, that man might come to a realization that he cannot find his deepest longings of his soul and satisfaction in material things or anything that this world has to offer. And in this desperate need that they might be turned to Jesus Christ and the eternal life that he offers to all those who come to him in faith and repentance. And lastly, Lord, we pray. We pray for, for those who are students. We pray for those who are in a season of training, of education, whether in school or whether it is for career, whether it is for their line of work. Lord, would you, or for those who are considering training or schooling, Lord, would you light their path before them and give them knowledge and discernment would you help their minds lord as they dedicate their thoughts to books to memorizing to learning to taking exams would you provide all that they need and that even in their studying and in their learning and even in exams and turning in assignments that all these things would be done with a kind of excellency working the great pleasure of the Master who is in heaven. Father, we trust you for all these things. Lord, you call us to pray, not only to just pray, but to pray believing, pray having faith that there is a God who listens. There is a God who calls us to acknowledge him as our Father and that he intends to respond. With that, Lord, we also pray to you the prayer that you have taught us to pray in the Scriptures, saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. If you would, please turn with me to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. This morning, taking a break from the book of Acts, returning to the book of Acts next year, and next week we'll get into the Advent season, get into Advent sermons. So for this morning, we're going to get into... What we do on an annual basis is considering the life of a saint who's come before us, considering the life, trials, challenges, things of that nature, and then 
my aim in these sermons is to end sort of on a practical note. What is something that we can draw from this person that we have considered? And the topic of consideration for us this morning is Martin Luther. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. So there is, if you're following along on the bulletin, it's probably best that you don't. Because <laughs> uh, part of the challenge, preparing a sermon, I mean, this has gone from like pages and pages of notes to like 12, to like 8, and to now like 6, I think. And even then, there's just too much. And so there's a lot of cutting out that has happened even this very morning so that the bulletin isn't quite as consistent as uh, consistent with my sermon this morning. So it's probably better not to even pay attention to it. So take for instance, in the bulletin, I think you have 1 Kings 15.23 as our anchor passage. That's not the case. Hebrews 3.1. Hence why you also not find it on the screen, so I apologize for that. I'm making the people upstairs pretty upset, probably. And Brooke, who's gone through the work of probably putting these things together and whoever else. Anyways, I, I'm done. Hebrews 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray once more. But Father, in the little moments that we have together this morning, in the moments that we have dedicated to the sermon, Lord, what is 40, 45, 50 minutes of considering one life? 50 minutes, or however long this takes, is, is not nearly enough especially for somebody who is as gigantic in the Christian faith as Martin Luther. Lord, and one of the reasons why we come each week to give our thoughts to Jesus Christ is because Jesus himself is inexhaustible. Not enough for just 40 or 50 minutes of consideration. So Lord, would you help me? And just the material that I have this morning to pick and choose, help me as I strive to encourage your saints, the form of application drawn from the life of this saint who has gone before us. Would you season our time together with your grace and with your Holy Spirit? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the passage here tells us to consider Jesus, the apostle high priest of our confession. This word consider is not sort of a, pa a casual consideration. Not something that you would consider for just a brief moment, for a second, and then leave off to consider something else. The word here for consider is to fix your mind upon something. That certainly is not in a casual manner. So, we're considering this morning the life of Martin Luther. Now, why Martin Luther? And I could go on and on as to the reasons why we're considering Martin Luther this morning. If you're here today, if you are a member here at Seacoast, or if you've been attending the church for a significant amount of time, and 
you say that I'm here and this is where I'm committing myself to, uh, then you're technically considered a, a, a Protestant, right? To be a Christian is, is to be a Protestant. Now, that, can, that requires some clarifying that I don't have time for because uh, it's kind of a broad spectrum of what it means to be a Protestant. But Protestantism really can be boiled down to five common beliefs. And this we have, we owe in large deal to Martin Luther. These common beliefs are considered to be uh, or named as the five solas, or the five solas of the Reformation. Uh, so Christ alone, faith alone, uh, grace alone, scripture alone, glory of God alone. And there's one particular doctrine that is important in Protestantism, and I would argue you cannot be a Christian without believing in this core doctrine, which we'll get to in a moment. And so we are here, this, and the word Protestant really comes from the word protest. And what Martin Luther was doing when the Catholic Church was dominant was kind of protesting. He nailed his 95 Theses, and the reason why there, is this, there was this reformation that came about was because of his work and because of his protesting. Against the, doctrines, against the doctrines of his day. And it led to a kind of revival because there was a recovery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. At that point, the gospel was just lost. Not entirely. I mean, there were others before him who were advocating for the gospel, promoting the gospel, preaching the biblical gospel, but it wasn't the dominant religion of the day of the West. And so the Protestant Reformation that came about through the works of Martin Luther was the recovery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one of the core doctrines or the chief doctrine or teaching or theology of this Protestant Reformation is justification by faith alone. That is the most important thing. In fact, John Calvin, the French reformer contemporary of Martin Luther, had once said justification is the main hinge on which salvation turns. Luther himself had said the most damnable and pernicious heresy that has ever plagued the mind of man was this idea that somehow make, man could make himself good enough to deserve to live with an all-holy God. This justification by works, doing and doing and doing, performance. But this idea that you can perform and do well enough to deserve a place in the kingdom of God, to live with God, is a terrible heresy. Luther adds, when the article of justification has fallen, everything has fallen. This is the chief article from which all other doctrines have flowed. It alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. And without it, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. It is the master and prince, the lord and ruler, and the judge over all kinds of doctrines. The recovery of the gospel is the recovery of, the, of justification by faith alone. That man is not saved by his works, but he is saved. He is justified 
by believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. More on that a little bit later. But now let us consider the man Martin Luther. And to understand the man and to understand how important he was in the Christian religion, or in church history, rather, you have to understand the times. At the time, the Catholic Church, the Catholic doctrine, Catholic teaching was the dominant teaching of the West, was the religion of the West. And yet at the same time, there's a lot of shady things going on, not only in the background, but also outwardly. Pope, I think it was Leo, I can't remember, had hired Michelangelo to paint a Sistine Chapel. This particular Pope had lavish tastes. In fact, so lavish was his taste, and even what also precipitated into what I'm about to say was his hiring of Michelangelo to paint the Sistine Chapel, but it, all, all of that sort of culminated into almost running the Catholic Church bankrupt. Not only that, but there was open sin, there was open sexual immorality, even priests who were supposed to give themselves to a life of celibacy openly flaunted their illegitimate children to people. Queen Isabella of Castile had once said that dissolution is such that the souls entrusted to the clergy receive great damage. For we are told that the majority of the clergy are living in open concubinage, and that if our justice intervenes in order to punish them, they revolt and create a scandal, and that they despise our justice to the point that they arm themselves against it. You should also know the name of one individual, and that is John Tetzel. To answer the problem of bankruptcy in the church, the church hired John Tetzel to try to figure out a way, how can we generate more income into the church, and that's when indulgences came in. You see, the Catholic Church wanted people to be terrified And that's because they were not. They did not live in dread. And they thought people should live in dread. Dread of what? Dread of the wrath of God. Now, to some degree, I don't disagree with that. I think there should be a great fear for the wrath of God. If you do not believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you should be absolutely terrified because hell is real. Hell is an eternal place. Hell is a place of eternal punishment. The Bible says those who are without Christ, that is their ultimate destination. To some degree, man should live in this perpetual dread of what is coming to him apart from Christ. However, what we should disagree with is their intent in trying to stoke these fires of dread and fear in the hearts of men. Because their intent was to drive people to the church and drive them to these indulgences. Because part of the Catholic teaching and doctrine is the doctrine of purgatory. That is, if you're not good enough to get into heaven, but you're also not bad enough to get into hell, well, there is this intermediate place, the purgatory, where you can sort of, on your own, pay for your sins on earth until you finally get to a place where you can get, become good enough to go to heaven. And so the practice of indulgences was instituted as a way of buying yourself less time in purgatory and also buying less time 
and purgatory for those loved ones who have already passed away. And this is a way of generating more income into the church. Really what the church wanted, what the Catholic church wanted, was for the mass, for the crowds to lay hold of what the church had to offer. In the Catholic Church, the Pope is the gatekeeper. He functions as a kind of Christ, hence why Martin Luther and John Calvin and the Puritans also had a lot of things to say about the Catholic Church and even going so far as to say that the Pope is the Antichrist, the capital A Antichrist, because he was a man who set himself up as a kind of Christ, saying, sort of standing at the gates of heaven and being able to say who gets in and who doesn't get in. Not only that, but the Catholic Church were the keepers of doctrine, keepers of the Bible at the time, during Luther's time. The Bible was only written in Latin. It wasn't written in the common language of the people, and this was on purpose because they did not want people to read the Bible on their own. Again, this was all intended to get people to depend and attach themselves to the church. Attach themselves to the priests. Attach themselves to the Pope. The keys of the kingdom and the keys of salvation belonged to the Pope and no other. So that is the kind of world that Martin Luther grew up in. Martin Luther now considering him his father Hans Luther was a coal miner and he had saved a lot of money to be able to finally send his son to school because he didn't want his son to be a coal miner like he was. And he wanted his son to study law, and so that's what he did. Luther went to school, studied law, immediately distinguished himself amongst the rest. He had a brilliant mind. And then one day, one evening during a lightning storm, as he was on his horse, I think on, his, on campus or riding to campus, lightning struck near to him. He fell off his horse, and he was absolutely terrified. And in that moment, he prayed to St. Anne. Anne was considered, oh, St. Anne was considered to be the, the saint of coal miners, so his father's saint. He prayed to St. Anne and essentially made a, a sort of a promise, save me, St. Anne, and I will become a monk. And so he didn't die that day in the middle of a lightning storm, and so surprisingly, he kept his oath. He withdrew from his studies, withdrew from his school to the discouragement and disappointment to the anger of his father and enrolled himself into a monastery. Not just any monastery, but the most strict monastery, the Augustinian monastery. So he enrolled himself as a monk. He was going to become a priest. Now Luther gave himself wholeheartedly, 110, 150% to the religious life. He fasted regularly. He fasted for days. Some would say even to a disastrous extreme. He would even go on to say later on in his life that the reasons why he had so many physical ailments and troubles with his stomachs and indigestions and bowels is because of how much he fasted in his younger years. And there's a reason why he gave himself to so much fasting and so much of the religious life, and that's because he had a troubled conscience. He was eager 
to get rid of his sins. He would spend hours in the confessional, confessing every single one of his sins, hours upon hours. The, the priest would be incredibly annoyed at Martin Luther, thinking, Martin Luther, like Luther, this is such a tiny little sin. You really need to confess these things. In his mind, he needed to. He spent hours at the confessional, and then finally when he left the confessional, he would be relieved, he'd have peace, he'd have joy, until he remembered that there's another sin that he failed to confess. He had a troubled conscience. He knew of every single one of his sins. He has such a keen awareness of his sins. I don't think most people, even amongst Christians, I don't think most people have that kind of keen awareness of their sins. To know each and every single one of them and to be troubled in their conscience by every single one of them. I mean, it is enough, I mean, to just lay a heavy burden. It is enough to bring somebody to a terrible state of depression. To have that kind of keen awareness to every single one of your sins. He was terrified. And you can see his absolute terror when it was time for him to conduct his first Mass. And to understand why he was such dread of conducting his first Mass was because of Catholic doctrine that teaches transubstantiation, which is the belief that the actual bread and the cup become the body and the blood of Jesus Christ that they actually become that mysteriously. And so the priests would, bring, would, would pray a prayer of consecration, and in that prayer was when these elements would be transformed to become the actual body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And so he was absolutely terrified to think that me, one who was such a grievous sinner, someone who sins so often, for me to stand before the people and to stand before the presence of God and conduct this Mass was absolutely horrific. The only reason he got through is because of rote memory, because he had already rehearsed the prayers. In his mind, he was a man that could never measure up to the standards of God. And to some degree, that's true. No one could ever measure up. But to God, or to, to Luther, God was like this angry father that could never be pleased. No matter what you did, no matter how you did it, no matter how much you performed, God was like this father that was never pleased, was never satisfied, was never happy. You should never expect to hear from God, well done, good job, you did great. Luther would even go so far as to say that he hated God. He hated God. And in part because he understood well the wrath of God. He understood that he himself was deserving of wrath. He himself understood that people are deserving of the wrath of God because he is a holy God and sinners are sinners. Sinners cannot measure up. Sinners cannot be righteous no matter how hard they try. John 3.18 tells us, whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, 
But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. In other words, if you have yet to believe in the gospel, that means that the wrath of God is over your head. It is there. It is ready to come at any moment. You cannot run from it. You cannot hide from it. You cannot ever escape it. It follows you wherever you go. Mark 9.47 says, And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That's how Mark describes this ultimate destination. This is the just judgment that comes upon anyone who does not have any righteousness about them who cannot measure up to the standard of God. Luther, in the monastery, just as he did in his secular pursuits of education, also distinguished himself because of his brilliant mind, began to teach and preach, and received many invitations to continue to teach and preach. And it was when he was teaching on the book of Romans that we see sort of this personal agony as he wrestles with the Word of God. And, and he was specifically wrestling with Romans 1, 16 and 17, most especially Romans 1, 17. Romans 1, 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He agonized over that passage. And when it comes to Luther, when it comes to man's standard of righteousness, when it comes to man acquiring his own righteousness or performing his own righteousness, there was no one else like Luther. Luther was very much like the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul describes himself in Philippians 3.4. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. In other words, if I have reason for confidence, if you could say that there's anyone who was close to heaven, it would have been me, the Apostle Paul said. As to zeal, persecutor of Christians, as to the law, blameless. That's how Luther would have described himself. I mean, there was blameless. When you compare him to anybody else, if you were to say, who is the person who was closest to heaven, it would have been Luther. There was no one as righteous as he was. Righteous in the sense of man working out his own righteousness. And yet, he himself understood that still it wasn't good enough. As he wrestled with Romans 1.17, he says, I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, 
the justice or the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that justice or righteousness whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that, although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience, and had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Romans 1.17 The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. The way that Martin Luther was understanding that passage is that God is righteous in the condemnation of sinners. That God is righteous in inflicting his wrath upon sinners. And that's not false doctrine. That's actually true. But that's not what Romans is talking about there. But he understood he needed to figure this out. Because if he figured this out, everything else, including his own life, would make sense. And he finally makes the discovery. He writes, Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that God was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners, and secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God and said, as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue, without having God at pain to pain by the gospel and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteous wrath. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul at that place, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. He agonized over that passage. And he says, Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice or the righteousness of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning and whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet and greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate of heaven. We don't know if that was kind of his, his conversion experience, but something changed drastically in Martin Luther's life when he came to the realization of what Romans one seventeen is talking about. The righteousness of God is not God, it's not talking there about God justifying or being righteous in condemnation of sinners, but the righteousness of God as it expressed there in Romans 1.17, that Paul's intent was to say that God shows himself righteous in the salvation of sinners through sheer grace and mercy through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And how is this possible? How is this possible that the unrighteous is made righteous 
through faith. It's a fancy word called imputation, which simply means crediting something to one's account. What happens is that we all stood condemned before the righteous and holy and just God who was ready to render his verdict that we are guilty before him and to also render the just punishment deserving of our sins. And in that moment in the courtroom stands one who is an advocate and that is Jesus Christ who stands in our place and he says to the just judge, let me take the punishment on their behalf. Jesus died, was crucified to a cross, buried in a tomb, and thank God rose again three days later. And in this way, experiencing in himself the agony of being separated from God the Father, he absorbs the wrath of God for those who call out to him in faith and repentance. So that not only are they then declared innocent, but they're also declared righteous. Because what happens is that Jesus' righteousness, his perfect, his perfection, his keeping the law perfectly is credited to the sinner's account. So the sinner is then considered righteous before a holy God. So you see, Luther's discovery of Romans 1.17 and what it meant led to a discovery, a rediscovery of justification by faith alone, which led to a recovery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Shortly thereafter, he produced his 95 theses, or these 95 statements of protest against Catholic doctrine and teaching. Focus most specifically on the practice of indulgences. He took these 95 theses and he nailed them to the church doors of the castle church in Wittenberg. And 95 theses, for example, number 27, he writes there, they preach vanity who say that the soul flees out of purgatory as soon as the money thrown into the chest rattles. Number 62, the right and true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. Number two, this is a good one. In the word penance, neither can nor may be understood as referring to the sacrament of penance, that is to confession and atonement as exercised under the priest's ministry. Luther came to the realization that penance was a poor interpretation of the word repentance, or the word metanoia in the Greek. He looked at the Greek, and as it was translated into the Latin, which was the language of the Bible at that time, it translated that Greek word into penance, do penance. Penance is going to the Catholic Church, going to the priest, confessional, saying these Hail Marys, doing these acts of atonement, atoning for your own sins under the authority of the priest. And Luther can discover, that's a terrible interpretation of that Greek word. The word that fits best is repentance. And he writes in the thesis that repentance requires a change in one's entire life. It's not just this act of going to the priest for confession. Shortly thereafter, 
And he caused a great turmoil, a great stir in those calm waters at the time. In part because many of his students uh, took those 95 theses, copied them, translated them into the common language, and distributed it to just about everywhere. And then people's minds were blown as they read these things for themselves. Finally, we have the Diet of Worms. He is summoned by the elite of the day. The elite and the clergy, even the emperor, was there. He thought he was coming to engage in theological discussion, debate, to help people to understand where he gets his views from. Instead, to his surprise, he's summoned there to recant. They bring him before the council, and they point to his books. They say, are these your books? And he says, yes, they are. And they ask, do you recant? And despite what you may have seen in television productions, renditions of Luther's story, he was actually quite fearful and timid. He asked for 24 hours to consider their request. The next day he came back and he says, Since then your serene majesty and your lordship seek a simple answer, I will give it in this manner, plain and unvarnished, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it's well known that they often err and contradict themselves, I am bound to the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. Time does not allow me to get into everything that happens afterwards following this moment. I mean, from capture to house arrest to his prolific writings, his translating the New Testament in less than a year into the common language of the people. There's so much to consider about his own life. He certainly, if you know some things about Luther, you know that he wasn't a perfect man. He had a a way of, with his tongue, (laughs) he let out some things, he said some things. He wasn't afraid of insulting people. And he could have tamed his tongue a lot. There's some concerns about what he says concerning the Jews, and some consider that he was perhaps became anti-Semite. He was not a perfect man. He had his faults. There were things in his life that certainly needed to be changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we don't, we certainly, we consider the faults, the sins of saints that have come before us, but we don't let such sins and those such faults erase the goodness of God in their lives either. We don't let those things erase the way in which God used such individuals for the church throughout Christian history. So, sort of draw us to conclusion, I want to highlight something for us by way of practical application, something that we can take something that was important to Luther, something that was monumental in his life that led to such a transformation in his life and that led to such a transformation in the West 
that had this incredible ripple effect throughout generations, even to this day. Luther discovered or rediscovered justification by faith alone. And how did he do this? He says that he beat, unfortunately, upon Paul there in Romans 1.17, desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. And this led to a great change. This was a change of everything. This was a rediscovery of the gospel. It led to a kind of revival. This justification by faith alone answers the great question of the Bible, which is, how do I get right with God? It is justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Luther experienced two different change, significant changes in his life. Change of life, change of reality. One is sort of what he considers his near-death experience in the middle of the lightning storm that changed the entire trajectory of his life. And the other moment that changed his life forever, including his eternal destination, is his internal and private wrestling with Romans 1, 16 and 17. How did Luther come to rediscover this precious doctrine of the Christian faith? Again, he says, I beat importunately upon Paul. Another way of saying, I wrestled with Paul. I was agonizing over this passage. I was trying as hard as I can to understand it. Luther was meditating on sacred scripture. And this is what I want to draw your attention to. topic of meditating on sacred scripture as something fundamental, something essential in the Christian life. This is not to downplay the importance of prayer. Prayer, absolutely, of course, important in trying to understand the scriptures. Even Luther had once said that the holy scriptures cannot be penetrated by study and talent and most, is most certain. Therefore, your first duty is to begin to pray. And to pray to this effect that if it pleased God to accomplish something for His glory, He very graciously grant you a true understanding of His words. You must therefore completely despair of your own industry and ability and rely solely on the inspiration of the Spirit. We certainly need to pray. Prayer is instrumental in trying to wrestle with and understand the sacred Scriptures. But the reason why I want to, continue, I want to put forward this means of grace, of meditation before you is because of how incredible it was in the life of Martin Luther. The reality that changed his life came through meditation. Even the Apostle Paul tells the young protege Timothy, think over what I say and the Lord will give you understanding in everything. There's a condition If you want to understand, if you want the Lord to help you to understand what he has written in his word, think, ponder, ruminate, muse, consider what you are reading. I love Psalm 39.3. It says there, my heart became hot within me as I mused, the fire burned. Muse, another word for meditating, considering. Meditation 
is approaching a subject with the intellect, but not just the intellect, but also with the affections. The Puritan Thomas Watson defines meditation as a holy exercise of the mind whereby we bring the truths of God to remembrance and do seriously ponder upon them and apply them to ourselves. One of the reasons I love the Puritans so much is because you can tell in their writings, you can tell in their sermons that they meditated deeply, deeply on the Word of God. I'm always amazed by their insights and their discoveries and what they learn through the Scriptures and how they, as doctors, apply them to their own selves and to the people. Part of the reason I think is because they had no, no such thing as television. It's taking your time. Just chew on the Word of God. It's difficult for us to do, even when we sit down to have a meal. I mean, if we have something sitting before us that's really good. Right, we eat. We put the fork, the plate into our mouth, and we do that, and we, we, just, we want to eat because it's, it's delicious. It is, it is delightful. And sometimes we approach the Word of God in the same manner, with a, with a hastiness. It's a fast-pacedness when it comes to the reading of the Word? Do you take the time to meditate, to slow down, to consider an entire chapter, or a paragraph, or a sentence, or even just one word? And it could produce an incredible amount of things. A popular hymn, Mighty Fortress, sung by many churches to this day, a hymn that Luther wrote, came about because he was meditating on Psalm 144. Meditating is a biblical command, Hebrews 3.1. He's read earlier. You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Consider to fix one's mind upon something. It is to take your mind and to nail it to Christ Jesus. Nail it to the cross. Nail it to the word of God. Distractions come. Distractions come all the time. So you pick up your mind again and you nail it back up. Interruptions, interruptions come. Yes, they come. You take care of the interruption. You take your mind again and you fix it back up to the word, the cross, to Christ Jesus. And sometimes it is pretty much like that, where you're trying to take your mind and, again, fix it. Boom, boom, again, because you keep getting distracted by other things. But this is the, that's the act of meditation. It is like Jacob wrestling with the angel of God. I will not let you go until you bless me. In the summer... Of 1526, Luther took up the challenge of lecturing through the book of Ecclesiastes. And he wrote to a friend, Solomon the preacher is giving me a hard time, as though he begrudged anyone lecturing on him. But he must yield. In other words, this guy is going to give me all he's got. I'm not letting him go. I'm going to keep wrestling because I'm eager to understand what he's talking about. Why do we meditate? Why should we meditate? Here's one reason why you should meditate. 
you should meditate because good books deserve to be meditated upon. There's a lot of bad books out there that don't, you should not care about. I very much love the fact that if you read a book and you don't find it interesting, you know, first chapter in, by all means, get rid of it. Stop reading it. Life is too short to be reading a book you're not interested in. Some books do not deserve the attention of your thoughts. Some books deserve that kind of attention. And what is better than the sacred scriptures? Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. There in Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul seems to be saying, consider everything that I've read before. Consider what I have written in the last 11 chapters. Consider these things and now present yourselves as a living sacrifice and be transformed in the renewing of your mind. How do you experience the transformation of your lives that comes about through the renewing of your mind? By considering, meditating, musing, reflecting, chewing on the sacred scriptures. And Paul's making the case. Consider the last 11 chapters, which is a Mount Everest. That's one of the reasons why I haven't preached the Romans yet. It is like a careful jeweler looking at a diamond, and he's looking at it intently. He's focused. He's looking. He's turning it this way and that, upside down, left, right. He's trying to see if there's any imperfections, trying to see any, if there's any scuff marks, trying to understand, to see for what it's worth. This is what we do with the Scriptures. We turn it this way that we look at it intently we keep our eyes fixed upon it what does it say what does it mean what is it Paul in trying to trying to communicate it's like analyzing a letter that you receive from a loved one even if it's only a page long you think about that letter you read it over and over again you try to understand the person's emotions as they wrote it down. You try to understand what their intent was. You're thinking carefully about every word that is written in that letter. We meditate on the Bible because the Bible deserves to be meditated upon. We meditate on the Bible because we must become more than just casual readers of the Scriptures. There's a place for casual reading of the Scriptures. But if casual reading of the scriptures is what characterizes your own personal time with the Lord, then I would challenge you to seek for change. Try to think more meditatively on the sacred scriptures. I don't know if I should be ashamed or not. I've only read through the Bible once in my entire life. I'll be the first to admit I should probably do it more. And I certainly commend Bible reading plans. I think Bible readings are incredibly helpful. I am amazed that there are so many people who have read the Bible so many times in its entirety in their lives, probably to a degree that will probably ne- I will probably never catch up to them in the, sort of in the, the pace that I'm working with right now. But one of the reasons why I tend to avoid reading plans is, one, because I don't like to be told what to read, but also because... When I've done it, it doesn't always lend itself, in my, from my opinion, to think, to slow down and think carefully about what I'm reading because you're 
reading several chapters, New Testament and Old Testament. Again, incredibly helpful. And if that's you, continue to do that. But I would encourage you to be intentional. Pick a chapter to meditate on. Fix your mind on a chapter. Or consider taking some extra time during the day, a separate time in the day, perhaps in the evening before bed, to read something else, something you can spend more time on, something that you can chew on, something you can read more slowly so you can think meditatively upon. I spent the, four or five, the past four or five weeks just on Romans 12, 11, on one passage, because I'm trying to understand what Paul is saying there. That's what I'm thinking about. That's what I encourage you to think about in your own times with the Lord. Another reason why we meditate for comfort. Imagine taking a passage like in Lamentations where it says there, this I call to mind and therefore have hope that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are made new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Imagine just spending seven days in your personal quiet time, in your personal devotions, or spending two weeks just on that passage, trying to wrestle with it, trying to understand it, looking up every word. What does this word mean? How does this word use in this book? How is this word used in other passages? What does a faithful, what does steadfast love mean? You think you know that you, what it means until you actually dive deep and try to understand what it means. And you will, I'm sure, come to really understand what it means and realize some things that you never knew before. We must become more than casual readers of the Scriptures. It's like staying in the shallow end of the water and never progressing further. There are some rich treasures to find at the bottom of the waters if you're willing to dive deep enough. One final reason. Why should we meditate on the Scriptures? We meditate to be changed. We meditate so that we can change. You cannot change a whole lot or at all by just casually reading the scriptures. How do you meditate for change? Consider what needs changing. What is the sin you're struggling with? What is a particular area that you want to grow more in? And then consider, what does the Bible have to say about this? What does the Bible say about this sin? What does the Bible say about this temptation? What does the Bible say about stress? What does the Bible say about peace? What does the Bible say about joy? Try to see what does the Bible say about this thing that I'm trying to grow in. And when you give your mind to that particular topic, to that particular word, or that passage, or that theology, you're going to change if you are engaging the Scripture not only with your intellect, but also with your heart as well. With an intent to change. We meditate because there are still areas in our lives that need changing. That need the grace of God. That still need to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So we meditate on the sacred scriptures because this is how change is produced. This is how change came about in Martin Luther's life. Imagine 
if he had just given himself to a casual reading of the scriptures. He went through Romans 1, 16, 17. Huh, okay, that's what it says. All right, let me move on. It would have done nothing for him. It would have done nothing for the gospel in his time. But all that change and all that transformation came not from some miraculous angel appearing to him out of nowhere and giving him the words. No, it came through his personal wrestling with the word of God. Wrestle like Luther. Beat upon the sacred scriptures. If Solomon, if Paul, if James will not relent and tell tell you easily what he intends to communicate to you in his word, then you keep pounding away. You keep wrestling with James. You keep wrestling with the Apostle Paul until he finally yields. The fruit of the word. By way of response, let us go to the Lord and let us take communion together. So if you have yet to do so, there are these small cups in the back table. You're free to make your way there at this time and grab one of these. Luther also had a lot to say about the Lord's Supper. And we're thankful for his efforts because he helps the church to understand that this bread and cup do not become physically the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. We don't take this as a sacrament. We don't take this as a way to atone for our own sins. But we come and approach the Lord and we take this meal as those whose sins have already forgiven, have been forgiven. We don't try to We're not trying to crucify the Lord Jesus again by thinking that this actually becomes the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. We don't come with our works. We don't come trying to perform. We don't come trying to say, God, forgive me of my sins because I take this meal. No, I come to you, Lord, taking this meal because my sins have been forgiven. And this meal is a pointer to me that my sins have indeed been forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. So regardless of what your conscience is telling you today, regardless of what you're feeling inside that may be preventing you from taking this meal, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have given your life to following Christ Jesus, if you strive to make your life characterized by the repentance that the Lord requires, and you have received baptism, then the Lord welcomes you to take this meal as one who has been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. Take heart, brother and sister. Your sins have been forgiven in Christ Jesus. You don't have to pay for them yourself. The righteous one has already paid for every single one of them so you can take this meal today. But if you have yet to give your life to Jesus Christ, if you do not believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, 
And we ask them to not take this meal with us, but consider what I have said earlier. The wrath of God is hanging over your life. And the only thing that can remove it is faith in Christ Jesus. Do not trust in your own works. Do not trust in anyone else's work. Trust only in the work, the finished work of Christ Jesus. Believe in the gospel. Believe in Christ Jesus. Be saved from the wrath of God. Be saved from your sins and receive eternal life in Christ Jesus. Let us take a moment to, from where you are, reflect, think about Christ Jesus. Think about forgiveness. Confess your sins before the Lord, but also trust that your sins are forgiven is Christ Jesus. Just take a moment to just pray from where you are to think, reflect before the presence of God. We're going to take bread first and then the cup, and we'll take it in the same manner that we've always done. As we take this, let us do it with confidence and with faith that every single one of our sins have been forgiven in Christ Jesus. And let us wholeheartedly affirm that the body of Christ has indeed been bruised for us and the blood of Jesus has indeed been shed for us. So let us start with the bread. Brothers and sisters, the body of Christ bruised for you body of Christ bruised for me. In the same way, the cup. Dear saints, the blood of Jesus shed for you. The blood of Jesus shed for me. Lord, we are justified this morning by faith in Christ alone. Lord, we admit that it is oftentimes easier for us to work out our salvation and to present our good works before you as a way of acquiring your attention and making you to see that we are deserving of eternal life. Lord, help us to reject every thought, to reject every inclination that steers us in that direction. Help us to focus on the gospel, to think meditatively upon Jesus and his work on the cross on our behalf. Help us to rest in his finished work. 
for if we give ourselves to our own work and try to work out our own righteousness, we'll be exhausted and we'll never achieve anything. But if we rest ourselves in Christ Jesus and what he has done for us, then we can have assurance that our sins have indeed been forgiven and paid for by our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to never tire of the gospel. Help us to never tire of thinking deeply on your sacred scriptures. Help us to perform or help us to pursue changes in our own personal lives by thinking meditatively upon your sacred scriptures. Help us to wrestle with your word just as Luther did. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church, let's stand and, and sing in response to today's message. And together, my hope is built. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and Righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Darkness. Darkness fails his lovely face. I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand.
Father, may we only boast in your righteousness. That is through Jesus. God, let us not boast on our own, God, but instead be humbled by the understanding of our justification, God, by faith in Christ alone. Lead us, God, to, as we heard today, God, to, to sit and to meditate in your word with, with every affection and chewing of every word. Fix our eyes on you, Father. May we wrestle with your word and examine our lives as we, as we try to understand what you're trying to say. And in that, God, transform and renew our minds as Paul shares. As your word shares, Father, bring us to a place of repentance and change. God, may we, your church, desire this intimacy with you. As you reveal to us your word. And may we consider Jesus. May we consider Jesus and believe in the gospel. Father, you're worthy of our praise. And it is in Christ, in Jesus Christ, that I pray. Amen. Today's benediction comes from Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Have a good day, church. You're dismissed.